Jen Cooper, the keeper, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 261, and I've got something a little bit different today for a stat to go with that number. Not soccer-related, but how about this? Uh, Catherine Schweitzer was wearing number 261 when she tried to run the Boston Marathon in 1967 before women were allowed to uh, run the marathon. And of course, she got pushed off the course. So props to you, Catherine Schweitzer. All right, two chats today. First, with Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer. Dan and I take a look at this weekend's NWSL game, games as we get to the nitty gritty of the end of the season. And then I chatted with Karen Tyvum of The Athletic, or rather The Athletic UK. Karen will be doing coverage for The Athletic of the FAWSL, uh, other things across the pond. So we talked about the league in England, Euro 2021 qualifying, and a few other fun topics. So enjoy. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Dan Lawletta of the Lawletta Lowdown, a.k.a. sometimes Equalizer Soccer. Um, Dan, of course, I have to bring you on to talk playoffs. Not not our usual cranky conversation. This is more of our highbrow analytical conversation, right? It's like key playoff time. Well, I can be cranky about not getting cranky. <laughs> so what a for- surprise. The, the courage got in. What a surprise. <laughs> Hey, but Houston made it pretty difficult. They did. That might be the least fulfilling game I've ever seen in the league, uh, or maybe second to the Chicago Sky Blue game last year when Sky Blue had the one day of rest and pretty much literally had no answer for Chicago. But, yeah, that was like a classic, we know we're not good enough, so we're going to play like we're not good enough and try to hold them to a draw and darn near – Got there. Darn near did it. That's all we're going to say about that match at this point. Because we're looking forward to the weekend where we have four games on Saturday, um, all of them streaming. So I want to talk about, you know, your thoughts on each of these games and especially related to playoff implications. So first up at 8 o'clock Eastern Saturday, Chicago back at home hosting Washington Spirit. And they've just got two games left. They'll be the only club that doesn't play uh, after the FIFA break. So thoughts on Chicago, Washington. Well, uh, my analogy about the red stars are they remind me of the girl back in high school that would never really go out with me, but she would always give me just a little bit of hope that it might happen somewhere down the line. Every time you think, all right, the red stars have really found something and they're a legitimate contender to host a semifinal and be a champion of the league, they lose to Sky Blue in Orlando. And then every time you think, all right, the Rory Dames thing is stale and they need to maybe reboot a little bit, then they run off some good results. Now, I don't know what to make of their win over Sky Blue. I thought Sky Blue was kind of dull. That was kind of a boring 3 nothing win. But the Red Stars are good. Red Stars are really talented. They've got the best goal scorer probably in the world, certainly playing in this hemisphere right now. They have not given up a goal since they moved Ertz and Davidson into central defense together. And, you know, they're in second place, but there's games in hand issues. So, you know, they're trending toward third place, even though they are currently in second place. Can the Red Stars take this game against the Spirit, who are good but flawed, and just on the very fringes of the playoff race, can the Red Stars take this game and say, you know what, this is a game we need to win. We win this game. We're not necessarily in the playoffs, but there are very few scenarios if we win this game that will keep us out of the playoffs. I mean, basically, if they win and the Royals and Reign don't draw on Wednesday, I mean, that's enough to get the Red Stars in. So a lot of things would have to happen if they don't win the game. Can they establish that dominance over a team, by the way, I will add over the years has given them fits in important matches, not least of which was the semifinal they played three years ago, but lots of other crazy regular season games that have done damage to Red Stars playoff hopes and positioning over the years. I like that you're describing Chicago um, 
as, you know, a girl from high school who clearly was bipolar and needed medication so that she wasn't <laughs> sending you two different messages. Yeah, note, that, <laughs> note there was no girl in high school that would go out with me. So it's like not easy, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's an analogy, clearly. Exactly. An analogy. Um, so then we have Utah hosting North Carolina. That kicks off at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Utah was on a great run in, in, in August, um, had, you know, kind of got stonewalled a bit by, by Houston in Houston. Uh, and then of course, didn't get to play last night at, at Tacoma. So that could be a good thing or a bad thing as they host the league leader. Well, it's a bad thing in the sense that they were already there, and now they're going to have to go back. It's not an incredibly long trip, but as someone who has done a fair share of air travel this year, uh, it does wear you out after yeah. a little while. Um, you know, I think it's fascinating for both them and the rain that they now have these extra games because they, they were going to be tied when they played the Wednesday night game. It didn't happen because of the bad field conditions, and now they both play at home on the weekend in very different games. If we maybe want to, you know, jump in and make it a joint uh, discussion with the rain and hosting sky blue. But I'm looking at this game a little bit from the courage perspective because Merritt Mathias, not long before we came on and started recording this, made an announcement on Twitter that she has a torn ACL. So she's out for the season. So Heather O'Reilly, who we thought was getting her last start, probably ever in soccer when they honored her a couple of Saturday nights ago, all of a sudden looks like she's now going to finish her career as the right back for a team (laughs) that is in the playoffs and will be the favorite to win the championship. I, you know, I think it's admirable that she has taken on this role, but I think she can be exposed at the right back spot. You know, it, we'll see what they do. But remember last year when McCall Zerboni got hurt in the uh, U.S. game against Chile? Right, with just we like were, what, you know, the one week of regular season and then the playoffs left to play. Right, and they had the game and they played the dash. And it was almost like, all right, we've got one game to figure this out before the playoffs. And they just pummeled the dash and then rolled through the playoffs. And you never knew McCall Zerboni wasn't there. So I'm curious to see how the courage actually responds to this one. But at the end of the day, if if Utah beats the rain, which is now uh, next Wednesday coming up, this, the 25th, I think they're going to be okay. But you know they're a little bit similar to the Red Stars to the point where they never they can't quite get that sustained run together because that game against Houston a couple of Fridays ago. Uh, was not a good performance. Okay to lose, but it wasn't a good performance for a team that was on the cusp of really solidifying themselves as a playoff team. And before we move on from this underrated story this year, the fall of McCall Zerboni in the last six months has been pretty spectacular, hasn't it? Because everybody thought on April 1st, you would have probably told me she was going to France. Now she's not even starting in the NWSL. Yeah. That's a whole other episode, Dan. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to make sure I get invited back at some point. <laughs> good, good thinking. Good thinking. Well, so let's let's talk about the the next game, 10 p.m. Eastern this Saturday. Rain still at home, assuming the field at Cheney Stadium is in better shape. Um, hosting Sky Blue. Now, Rain can kick out Houston from playoff contention with a win irregardless of other results. Um, of course, there's other ways for Houston not not to advance based on results this weekend, but rain, win, boom, it's over for Houston. Um, first, let's talk a little bit about, about you know, Wednesday night, uh, you know, getting the announcement that, you know, that game was rescheduled, the game that, you know, could have decided a lot of things. Uh, you know, I was, I was pleased to see that the announcement wasn't after you know, everybody's already in the stadium, that it was clearly handled much earlier than we've seen that kind of thing in the past. Yes, I had heard about it maybe 15 minutes before the announcement came that there was possible that maybe the field wasn't in good enough shape to play. But yeah, it's not, you know, it, I mean, it shouldn't, it's one of those things that shouldn't be a big deal, but it is because there have been so many failures at this over the uh, couple of years, and they did the same thing when the hurricane, which I guess didn't wind up hitting Orlando, but when they rescheduled the Washington-Orlando game from the FIFA window 
into the next FIFA window. Um, it seemed, I was out of town that week, but it seemed like that was handled early and without a lot of drama. Um, so that is certainly a good thing. Unfortunately, like I said, the Royals were already there. And then they had, you know, fly home and then weekend game and then another short turnaround into the reschedule. But, you know, these things happen from time to time. So you've got to overcome it. Well, and it, at least uh, they didn't have to reschedule that match for for the FIFA break. Yeah, that's what I think everyone thought was going to happen, which makes a lot of sense just from an aesthetic scheduling standpoint. But, I, I you know, there's just too much on the line to reschedule that match without Kristen Press, without Becky Sauerbrunn. And without I don't Lucino, know. Ali right, without Megan Rapinoe. Yeah. I don't know who from, I don't know what other countries are playing that. I think Australia window. has a match, so that would be Catley. Yeah, uh, so Can- it would have been Canada, a, it would have been Canada's a going to Japan, yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, it's, it's it's good that they were able to do that so quickly. So so what does this game mean for Rain this Saturday hosting Sky Blue? Well, it's pretty simple. They have to win the game. And it's not just that they have to win the game for standings purposes. You know, whoever wins the Rain Royals game gets the tiebreaker because they've split their first two. Right. If they draw big advantage to Utah because they are fairly significantly ahead in goal difference, but you have to beat Sky Blue at home. End of story. Sky Blue, has, as well as Sky Blue plays in Portland, that's about how poorly they played recently against the rain, although they did have some interesting results at Memorial going back a few years when the rain were even you know better than they are right now. But um, Sky Blue kind of slept walk through their home game against Chicago uh, the other night. Rain have to win this game. It's very simple. They're playing a lot better than they were when they swooned a little bit in August, and it just very simply they need to win. And of course, Sky Blue coming off uh, two losses at home. You know, first two one to North Carolina, and then the three zero against Chicago. You know, what do you think we'll see from Sky Blue? You know, Sky Blue was playing a lot better soccer under Hugo Macedo after they got rid of Denise Reddy. And then they made the very strange move of replacing their interim coach with an interim coach. It's only (laughs) been a, it's only been a couple of games since then, but I don't know. They may have gone backwards just a little bit from there. I, I just don't think sky blues roster was built correctly line for line in the off season. And obviously you know they, you know they had some injuries preseason uh, with some players being out for the year. Their two first-round picks both decided to eschew the team and go elsewhere, and they'll probably be discovery players in a couple of weeks. Mason Ashley. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, it feels to me like you know they're going to take a shot and try to get Carly in behind the defense. But if that doesn't happen, I don't know what other answers. Sky Blue has. The Rain are very good in the midfield. Vlako Andonovsky, I think, is the best coach in the league tactically, meaning if you gave every coach the same exact players, I think Vlako probably wins the tactical battle, and I think he'll figure it out. And, uh, you know, things are looking up for Sky Blue, relatively speaking, but the roster needs a whole lot of work. Yeah, and this is where I kind of want to, you know, get a statement from you, Dan. Of course, we we keep hearing Vlatko's, you know, possibly the lead candidate for the U.S. national team gig. So what are your thoughts on that real quick? I think that if you are just going by the ability to coach and identify players, I think he is far and away the best option that I'm aware of to coach the U.S. national team, even though it's a little bit of a thankless role coming in short turnaround to the Olympics. And really, how do you, you can't top two straight World Cup wins. I question whether or not Blacko would want to uh, abide by some of the U.S. soccer, I don't want to say policies, because I don't think these are policy things, but just some of the maybe Tradition. behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Behind the scenes things that go on. And I question whether U.S. soccer would want somebody a little bit out of the box like Vlatko Andonovsky. And I think back to 2013 when they hired Tom Sermani. And I feel like a Vlatko hiring would be similar to a Sermani hiring. The difference being that the big personalities 
Wombach, Solo, even maybe Christy Pierce, dare I say it. They're out of the mix, and Vlatko doesn't have to deal with them. And the program was very much under the gun in 2013 to get the World Cup back. That's not the case anymore. So on that ground, it might work out. So if the two sides feel like they can make it work in terms of philosophy, I don't think there's a better coach out there than Blacko. And I think that's a good point. And I would just add, too, that compared to Sermani in 2013, uh, you know, Sermani had coached in WSA, so he knew a fair amount of the players uh, on the national team and, and about, you know, American soccer. But it had been a while where Vlatko has been in NWSL since its inception. So that's full seven years now. So would have a familiarity with not only the pro league, but like youth and college soccer that, you know, I, I don't think other candidates um, would have. And definitely Sermani didn't have at the time. But let's, very, but very good point. But let's wrap it up. Um, so the final game, Saturday night, 10.30 p.m. Eastern kickoff, Portland hosting Houston. Houston coming off a, a frustrating result uh, at North Carolina, but, a, re, but was, um, a performance they should feel pretty good about, especially backing up to getting a win over Utah the previous Friday. Um, and, of course, last time Dash were at Portland, they, they suffered a really bad loss. I think it was, what, four goals in the first – 30 some, you know, some minutes less than that. Yeah. yeah, Um, It was not a good performance. And then now this will be the third game for Houston, you know, in what, less than two weeks or no fourth game, fourth game in two weeks, Portland, they haven't played since September 11th. So basically a a 10 day rest and they're at home. So what, what do you think we're going to see from this matchup? This is an interesting one. Um, I know that, uh, you Houston folks want to cling to hope about the playoffs. I don't think that's <laughs> happening. <laughs> you Houston folks. Okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's again, that it's a, it was a very unfulfilling match in North Carolina with Houston because they should have probably been on the spot to go up one nothing. They should not have been defending a penalty to go down one nothing. There were some other stuff that happened in the match, but I really thought it was, like I said earlier, it was a really a game where one team said, you know what, we are aware that we're not good enough. Not that we're not good enough, but we're not as good as this other team. So we need to make allowances in how we play to account for the fact that player for player, they're going to be better than we are. Can they do the same thing in Portland? And how exactly is Portland going to respond to the fact that their last game they set a league record by being shut out six to nothing. And, and I think, you know, Portland is, you know, I mean, most likely they're going to be in the playoffs. They would love, again, to host a playoff game. It would be, what, the fourth year in a row that that happened, and it had never been done three times in a row before last season. Um, but my big questions in Portland are their back line is still good, but prone to more breakdowns than in past years. And, Lindsey Horan, who I suspect is not 100% healthy yet, has just not been the same box-to-box dominating force that she was in 2018 and even 2017. Yeah, and I'm not sure that they can be the team that they want to be without that from Lindsey Horan. So that's what I would look for. Um, I'm sure you'll get a lot of uh, the scheduling apologists talking about how, you know, why do the Dash have to play on the road again and the Thorns are coming into this match on a long break. Definitely something if it's nine teams or 11 teams or whatever, an odd number of teams, to take a closer look at going forward, especially as teams have a little bit more control over the venues that they play in. Right. Um, but this is a this is a pretty darn tough assignment for the Dash here, though. And well, you wonder, no, do no, they? I have, to th- I, I have to throw in that you know the game on the seventeenth that originally would have been an August game, and North Carolina asked them to reschedule it because of ICC. And I don't blame North Carolina, and I don't blame Houston for for putting it where they they could put it. I blame the overall vision of the league that we knew North Carolina was going to host ICC. Right. You know, exactly. like, like we knew they were going to be in that. I 
you know, it, it just surprised me when the schedule came out. I'm like, aren't they going to allow for, like, we know ICC is coming. So, you know, it, it puts Dash in a bad situation. I, I think it, it made it tough, too, that North Carolina got a home game that got that becomes a Tuesday night as opposed to a weekend, you know. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's – that's that's how it is at the, at this point, but hopefully you know it's a situation that that you know won't won't happen again. And sometimes I think you can, as that team that's been on the road and, and played more games, I think sometimes you can use that to your advantage. Of you're in the oh, group, sure. you know. Absolutely. I mean, one of our favorite stories, you know, we we can we can always throw back to the first season of WPS of Sky Blue going on the road for three straight games in a week to beat three different teams that didn't have to play more games to win the championship. Yep. And I remember being at that final and the sky blue players. And I specifically remember Heather O'Reilly talking about this, about how, you know, some might say it's an advantage to be the LA soul. And, you know, they've been off for two weeks and, you know, we feel good. We're played in. And every single person that listened to that was like, all right, we understand why you're saying it. It's clearly not. <laughs> we don't believe you. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the next year, the Union, uh, the Independents had to play extra time twice, and then they had to play like 11 a.m., I think, local time in the final, and yeah. they got obliterated. So, you know, that yeah. does happen. But the thing for the Dash, though, is did they, did they leave North Carolina saying, we can compete with anybody in this league, let's go steal three points from Portland, or was that – late goal that they allowed and all, I mean, you could see if you follow the players or even the team account on Twitter, how frustrating and maddening it was for them. Is this the point in the season where they kind of, you know, let go a little bit? Well, and that's why I think it's going to be so compelling to watch Saturday night is which, yeah, which route did Dash decide to go? So we'll have a lot of things shake out Saturday. Definitely. And also, hopefully they show up in Portland and say, ooh, last time we were here wasn't fun. Let's not let that happen again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your insights. And I will definitely have you on back again soon, postseason, to, you know, so the two of us can have a long, cranky discussion about everything we found wrong about the playoffs. I'll be ready, as you know. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Karen Tevum, the new soccer writer for The Athletic. Um, And of course, Karen, you used to wear many other hats, which my regular listeners might remember. But let's talk about The Athletic. This is a pretty new gig. Yeah, thanks as always for having me on, Jen. Nice to nice to come on for the first time as a as a representative of the Athletic. And yeah, you're right, new gig for me, uh, new gig for us in the UK as well. The those who are familiar with the work of my colleague Meg Linehan will know that the Athletic has been going for a few years now. She has obviously been the primary writer for for women's soccer in the United States, looking after US women's national team in the NWSL. Um, and the Athletic in August branched out into the United Kingdom and has essentially launched like a, a separate arm. We still fall under the Athletic umbrella, but the UK arm of, of the organization focuses solely at the moment on soccer. So we have writers for every Premier League soccer team. We have writers for some of the championship teams in the second division of of English football. And and they brought me on board to look after their women's soccer. So I will essentially be complementing what Meg has been doing for a little while. My focus will primarily be on the game over in the UK and in Europe. I'll dip my toe in in the United States, but ultimately that's that's Meg's expertise and and she will lead on that. There might be the odd story that I write that relates to the US, but my primary focus will be on on the UK and, and Europe. So very, very honoured to be given the opportunity. It's been a long road to get here, but uh, yeah, looking forward to the challenge. I've, I've only been with them for, for less than a month, so still finding my feet a little bit, but I've already managed to, to write some good stories and hopefully those who've subscribed are, are enjoying what we're putting out there. Well, and, and so people know it is, uh, you do have to subscribe to The Athletic, though I think what it's a free one-week trial. 
Yeah, there is a free trial that you can get, so you can have a little see around the site and see what we've been doing. And um, there's a lot of discount codes floating around at the moment as well because we've had a lot of new starters. So the majority of the staff started the first week of August, but then there are a few of us that were finishing up other positions. There are some writers who who are very high up in their respective organisations who've got three-month notice periods to work, so they still haven't started with us. And when they do join, they they have the luxury of being able to offer a discount code to to encourage, I guess, people who are familiar with their work to sign up with us and, and where they've been reading their work previously, read it where they are now or where we are now at The Athletics. So there there is a lot of discount codes floating around, 40% off, 50% off. And uh, we hope that the, the small price that people have to pay for for really good quality in-depth journalism, and I don't just um, apply that to myself. We have we have some incredible writers. Obviously, people will know Meg, but as I say, we've uh, on the UK side, primarily on men's football. Um, we've we've poached some of the um, some of the best writers in the UK from some of the most well-known you know newspapers and news outlets in the UK. So uh, I'm in good company. Um, my focus is women's football. I won't be doing any men's football, which actually suits me. I prefer that prefer it that way. Um, but some of my colleagues will be doing women's football as well it won't just be me we've got as i said club writers for every premier league club and uh, we've got some scottish premier league writers as well and, and some of those have already done some some women's soccer pieces as well so i will primarily be leading on it but it certainly won't just be me and of course those that subscribe i think it's really important to point out and i don't want this to be a sales pitch but just to be clear if you subscribe to the work that we in the UK are doing, you still get the access to the US sports as well and vice versa. It's not separate subscriptions for those that want to read about US sports and read about the football that we're doing in the UK. If you subscribe to The Athletic, you get everything. And, and, that, and that's important for, for people to understand. And it's, it's interesting. I, I saw a few weeks ago some notes on uh, subscription levels for The Athletic compared to like New York Times and Washington Post, and it's it's the the numbers are really getting up there, which is which is great to see. So yeah, it's it's kind of a new new way to follow sports. But yeah, okay, we'll get off the sales pitch and and move on to actual um, women's soccer chatter. You um, normally, obviously, based in the UK, right now you're in the states, having gone to a pretty significant game in North Carolina this weekend. Yeah, currently sat in my cousin's kitchen in Morrisville in North Carolina, which is right next door to to Cary and Chapel Hill. Uh, came in last week, and and those that have uh, followed me on social media and 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 obviously listened to me on your podcast before will know that I have a very good relationship with Heather O'Reilly from the time that she spent over here in London. Or oh, sorry, I say over here. I'm in America. <laughs> over there. <laughs> Back at home, back at home in London. Um, obviously, she had an eighteen-month spell with with Arsenal, and 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 Heo and I um, linked up when when she was over, and and we've got on really well in that time. So, uh, I always said to her, look, when you have your last match or when you have some form of celebration match, I promise that I will be there. So I kept my word, and and I booked a flight up. I only booked it about a week in advance, and uh, and I flew out last Thursday. So yeah, I was at the game in Kerry on Saturday for her celebration match. Really nice to see members of her family there. Really good to see. Uh, an NWSL regular season record for the North Carolina Courage. I say an NWSL record, a record for the Courage. Not for the league, but for the club. Um, but yeah, really good atmosphere. Really good to see kind of everyone recognize what Hayo's done for the game over the 17, 18 years that she's had in her career. And uh, yeah, just really nice to be there and obviously topped off with not a bad goal from from her to kind of top things off. I know a Wednesday night when North Carolina was at Portland, uh, she had a, a shot pretty late in the game. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be so great for her to have a goal. Uh, but then I was like, no, 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 it, it should come it should come at home in her celebration match. And of course it did, along with uh, a, an assist as well. Um, talk about uh, being in North Carolina for, for home game, especially with a, with a crowd like that. Um, but just, you know, I, I don't want to talk a, a lot about, about Heo since I did have her on the show last week, but just, um, you know, what the environment was like, what the fan base felt like and, and any, any tidbits from the celebration afterwards, which of course was not really broadcast, but you did, I, I saw you put uh, a video on Twitter yeah, I, I, having obviously being a member of the media and, and having access to the 
to the press box before and during the game. We obviously went down on the field at the final whistle to to kind of interview a few people, and and obviously there was a, a bit of a presentation. I think Hayo was was presented with a with a framed shirt, and it had um, underneath it, it had all of our achievements as a player, and then there were some speeches from um, from Hayo and from Paul Riley and a couple of other people as well. And yeah, I mean, it, it was great to be there. This is my fifth NWSL venue that I've been to. I've done Orlando, Houston, Portland, and I did Memorial Stadium in Seattle, but I haven't done Tacoma. So um, for me, it's always a pleasure to kind of visit these venues and see how the the fan base is different, see how the setup is different. And I have to say, I, I tweeted the club directly after the match. I was really impressed with the setup in in Kerry. It's a it's a nice sized stadium. I thought the fan base was excellent. They generated a really good atmosphere. Um, there's a little bit of traffic that goes into the stadium, which is, I guess, normal for most um, for most stadiums in in the United States. And to be fair, back home as well. So, you know, I think there are a few fans that maybe didn't get into the ground until after kickoff, but uh, I think. There were other events going on locally as well, which didn't help. But I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my uh, my experience of of Cary and, and North Carolina on on Saturday evening. And obviously, you know, as I say, the the match was was very one sided. And I think, unfortunately, that was to be expected based on what North Carolina had done to Portland last week. And the the post match celebrations were very much about Heo. You know, she was very emotional. Um, you know, when you've played soccer for as long as she has and, and played it at the top level, and you know that your career is coming to an end. Yeah, I think it was one of those moments where it might have for the first time hit her. You know, I'd met up with her earlier in the day. She gave me a little tour of of the UNC uh, campus in Chapel Hill. I, I had coffee with her at her Carolina coffee shop, which was uh, which was a pleasure to kind of see that up close. And, you know, she was avoiding reading any messages before the match because she was inundated while I was sat with her. I saw her phone pinging for the hour and a oh, half. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she didn't read any of them. Um, she avoided as much as she could. She wanted to focus on the game and and I imagine that um, after that final whistle and hearing the crowd and seeing the presentation, it may well have been the first time that it quite, kind of hit her on the day. And I'm sure she was reading messages the following morning and uh, and really sort of trying to take it all in. But a uh, real pleasure to be there. As I say, I, I make no secret about it. I have a very good relationship with Heather. She's become a good friend of mine. And um, it was it was a real pleasure to kind of see her there and, and to see how you know fondly she's thought of by by so many different people. Well, and and you mentioned that that stadium, and it is really a, a lovely stadium in a, in a lovely setting. And thinking about Heo at the same time, her career is roughly the age of that stadium. <laughs> Interesting. I did not know. Um, she, well, well, she got her first cap uh, in in two thousand one, uh, I think, with the Algarve. Uh, but it was 2002 where we started to see her regularly with the national team. And that stadium opened May 2002, second season of WSA. And it was just a 7,000-seater. Now, it, now it's a 10,000-seater. And I remember hearing from someone – it must have been Kurt Johnson at the club when, when North Carolina – um, you know, when, when they got the women's team from Western New York Flash. But it's like we know they have intentions to, you know, pursue an MLS – franchise at some point, which of course would mean pretty big renovations to that stadium. But they also mentioned to me, it's like, there would also have to be new roads built because the way it is situated, like it just, you know, there's really only like, it, you know, it's in that park and, and there's it's just one two road. single roads. And yeah, so mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, it's awkward, but it's such a lovely setting. And I, I love how close it is to the airport and that downtown Cary has a lot of you know, really neat things and some historic things. And as you got to experience, uh, so not only did you see that game this weekend, you got to see your first NCAA game, lots of NCAA soccer in that area. Yeah, there is. I I have to confess my preference, largely because they have two English players, would have been to go and see UNC, but UNC were on the road um, in Arkansas, I think. Uh, So they they were away this weekend but by no means did I um, did I see any lesser quality of football because I managed to go and watch Duke um, on their campus against James Madison University so uh, for me I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I have a huge knowledge of, of the college game I don't it's very difficult to follow from the UK and, and it's another thing to try and get your head around on top of women's super league and champions league and the leagues in Europe and NWSL. I, I just, it's just difficult to kind of have the time to, to really invest into college soccer. But for me, I right. wanted to 
I wanted to go and see the setup. I wanted to go and see what the fan base is like. It was kind of cool to to sort of see the you know potential players that that might end up in the NWSL or end up playing in Europe as professionals. And um, you know, there was an English player on the James Madison University team. wasn't someone I was familiar with, but it was cool to see how she got on. And you know, every goal that's scored by Duke, they won six nil. Um, there was Peter, someone out of up the, at the press box lobbing t-shirts into the crowd and there's all these kids (laughs) and you know it was just it was just a good experience i i put it out on twitter i am a self-confessed soccer nerd and and i like to go and experience different things i've been to stadiums i've been fortunate to go to stadiums all around the world and um this was an opportunity to see something a little bit different i've done a lot of stadiums in the united states but i hadn't done a college game before so yeah just just kind of interesting to see um how it kind of sets up and also because it's not a huge crowd you can actually hear a lot of what's going on on the field the players yes are, the coaches I'm always interested to hear what coaches are saying and the instructions that they're barking out and uh, yeah I can't remember the guy's name unfortunately but the the co- head coach for James Madison was particularly vocal and uh, not surprising really because his team was under the cosh for a lot of the game but yeah really really interesting as I said loved loved going to to see them as I said Heather O'Reilly gave me a tour of the UNC campus which was incredible managed to see where um, where Anson Dorans is working saw his office and, and the field that they're playing on there's been a lot of work that's gone on at UNC and they've, they've invested some money and the stadium looks great the facilities look great so yeah just uh, just an all-round good experience of of what the college setup is like well and I mean you ended up getting I think the the ideal tour like I, I think you should through the athletics sell women's soccer, you know, nerd travel tours where, you know, <laughs> come, come see an NWSL game, Anson Dorrance's office, a college game. <laughs> you know, and then and then you can visit the Outer Banks of North Carolina or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but let's let's jump back across the pond because um, it's such a significant time for FAWSL, especially post women's world cup and, and with the changes that were made a year ago, you know, in terms of, I I don't know if you would call it restructuring or just kind of making clubs in the top level kind of set a new standard or or what would the best way to be to describe that. But I just want to hear your thoughts on where FAWSL is right now. It's in a really good place. I think the strongest it's ever been, obviously last year, we had the first full season that the FA Women's Super League was fully professional. So every single club in that top division has to be providing minimum standards. It has to be uh, meeting certain criteria that this set that is laid out by the FA, things like a minimum of 20 hours per week training on the field. You've got to have certain members of staff in place and, and you essentially apply for a license to be in that division. Um, we obviously have the addition this year of Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur, obviously two recognised names in the men's game. Obviously United made waves when they relaunched their women's team for the first time in 2000, for the first time since 2005 last year. So, we have a we have a very competitive league and i think what's really key this year and we were speaking about it just before we came on to the podcast is that for the first time it's now accessible to you guys you know first right. since the two, since the nwsl launched in 2013 i've been able to watch it every year because it initially launched on youtube and then we had it on the nwsl soccer website i know you guys have had various apps some of them have been good some of them not so good to watch it over here but um, we've always had access to it in the United Kingdom, but you guys have never really had access to the Women's Super League. Now with the launch of their dedicated app, the FA Player, every single Women's Super League game is now broadcast through that app and is available to anyone around the world. There are some geo-blocking going on in various places because there are obviously areas that have got broadcast deals. Scandinavia is one, Mexico is another, so those people will have to watch it through their respective broadcasters but I've been in the United States since Thursday Sunday morning I was watching Manchester City v Reading on the player last night I was watching um, or sorry yesterday afternoon I was watching Arsenal Manchester United against Arsenal you know I've never been able to do that since I've been out in the in the United States or in the previous times I've been to the US occasionally there were games broadcast on Facebook but that was once in a while and and the quality of the broadcast wasn't always that great this is good quality broadcasting with proper commentary um, and is accessible to, as I say, th- those outside who who have broadcast deals, anyone can watch it. 
And even if you're in a country where there's a broadcast deal and maybe you don't have access to that provider, uh, you know, I, I, I need, I guess we need to put out a video tutorial for people of how to use a VPN, you know, recommend some VPN yeah. software because that, that solves most of your problems. And it's, it's good kind of personal computer security uh, as well, you know, yeah. um, but that's such a great you know, movement for, for FAWSL. I mean, not just selfishly that now those of us here can watch so much more easily. Um, but seeing that investment, um, and I think this is building on top of, uh, England doing well in 2015 as well. Yeah, I think, I think it's kind of been a continuous process. I think the FA of, of, you know got to take a lot of credit they've got some really good people working in the organization they rightly and understandably in the past have taken criticism for for various things that we're not going to go into because it would take a long time to go through them but (laughs) i i know um from the work that i do now and have done for the last few years they now have dedicated people who are responsible for women's football whether that's in um whether that's people like kelly simmons who are right at the top of the tree or um the communications team for example they are currently recruiting for a dedicated communications manager for the women's super league and women's football competitions they've never had that before they've had a a communications manager for the england women's team they before that had a communications manager who was responsible for overseeing all women's football which was england and the domestic competitions which is to be honest with you nigh on impossible because that's far too wide but they now are recruiting to try and fill the right areas and and they now want to uh they want to piggyback onto the momentum generated by the world cup we've seen some good attendances over here already manchester city played manchester united in the opening day at the etihad stadium which is obviously the men's stadium there was over thirty-one thousand at that game the following day chelsea played tottenham at stanford bridge the men's stadium there was just shy of twenty-five thousand at that one um I always am a little bit cautious with with attendances at the beginning of a new season because you always tend to find, and I know you guys have seen it a little bit in the US minus Portland, which is um, a little bit of an anomaly um, with the with the sort of initial interest after the World Cup. The attendances kind of drop off a little bit. Um, Sky Blue is another exception with what you see them, you know, uh, what they're doing there. But um, I will reserve judgment on how successful these attendances are until maybe six to eight weeks into the state into the season. But um, so far, so good. You know, attendances have been good. Quality on the field is is at the highest it's ever been, um, and the competitiveness of the league as well. You know, we've seen in the opening two weeks, Chelsea have already dropped points away at Brighton, Manchester United, and Tottenham have have shown as promoted clubs that they're going to be competitive. Um, you know, West Ham have got a win um, and and pushed Arsenal in a 2-1 defeat last week. So I think we're in for a really good season. Um, and uh, the quality of the players is, as I say, the, the best we've ever seen. So really looking forward to, to seeing what, what's served up this year. Well, and I also think it's worth noting that attendance is uh, not always the number one metric in terms of success. Uh, I think it's a, I mean, obviously it's a key metric, but it's not the only metric um you know you've got to look at the whole package especially when there's so much potential for growth for women's football in in the uk and and it's a different um market it's a different culture right i mean women's football there has to compete with what is the equivalent to nfl here right you're competing with the primary men's sport where it's a slightly different market here where you already have you know, NFL, basketball, baseball, and then men's soccer has always been kind of like number four, sometimes number five in the past. So mm-hmm. it's just, it, you know, it, it's a different thing. And obviously U.S. is so huge and, mar- you know, oversaturated sports market. So I know a lot of U.S. fans, you know, just try to compare directly. It's like, no, you got to take it as the whole package and all the things that we've heard uh, since the World Cup about, you know, new investment coming in, obviously the broadcast being available and the, and the quality of the broadcast. It's like those are all, all just huge, huge jumps. And it's just it's it's the building on top of that that is going to be, I think, the best barometer of success, you know, and and I think you're right to reserve judgment, you know, on, on the attendance. And it's like, OK, at the end of the season, let's look and see the arc of, of, the, of the whole season. 
Mm, no, without a doubt. I think, you know, we can get carried away with attendances off the back of a major tournament. I've seen it so many times. Olympics in 2012, World Cup 2015, Euros 2017. We always saw a spike initially after that major tournament and then it kind of falls away within the first few months. So you're right. You, you can't just judge success on attendances. We know that women's football or women's soccer is not going to be able to compete with the likes of the men's Premier League, which is running parallel to the to the women's season now since we moved it from a summer league to the autumn winter league so attendances are always going to struggle there's no doubt about that I think what we have to look at is how competitive are our teams being in Europe we have Arsenal and Manchester City in the Champions League this season both of them got good wins away from home in the in the first leg of the of the first round that they're in last week um what is the what is the um sorry about that what is the uh interest from broadcasters what is the interest from sponsors and we are seeing more interest Barclays have obviously come on board as the official sponsor I, I say the FAWSL I'm going to get told off it's now the Barclays FAWSL so I need to <laughs> I put the I put the at FAWSL uh, Twitter handle into into Twitter a few times last week and it was wrong. It's now at Barclays FAWSL. So I've oh fancy. My, I already had my my wrist slapped by fellow journalists over here saying, "Kieran, you keep getting it wrong." Um, but yeah, Barclays. Well, tell, tell them that you're used to the US, where we just we just say Premier League. We don't say Barclays Premier League. No. No, well, it's um, yeah, it's one of those where I think we, you know, the Barclays have shown huge commitment. Um, oh, invested, yes. invested ten million pounds into the women's game. Prize fund for the women's Super League is now increased significantly. They actually met with a, a representative of Barclays. I, I sit on the the Football Writers Association's Women's Football Committee over here, and and we had a meeting with Barclays of last month, and and they're really serious. You know, they're not in it to to tick a box. They want to genuinely you know, help raise the profile of the women's game. They want to invest money into grassroots. They really want to create a legacy of the partnership that they have with the Women's Super League and the FA. So it's really positive. Um, so we have the we have the commercial interest now. And, and as we've already said, the broadcast interest, we still have games on, on two of the major broadcasters over here, the BBC and BT Sport. Um, and now we have the FA player accessible as well. So um, yeah, it's 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 a really good time for the Women's Super League. I, I err on the side of caution, as I always do, because I've been involved in this game a long time. And sometimes, um, you know, you can have too much of a good thing and, and it can uh, backfire a little bit. But my hope is that this time it feels a little bit different. And I, I hope that we can, can kind of continue that momentum uh, and see it through and, and see the game continue to build. And maybe one day we will uh, we will overtake the NWSL as the most desirable league to play in. <laughs> And then, and then we can have an international champions cup that's like twelve teams. Yeah, I mean, look, that, I think that ultimately that's what we want, isn't it? Uh, I think my my preference would be to maybe go up to eight initially. Um, I think it would be good to have a couple of teams from the NWSL. I was speaking to I can't remember who it was. I think it was Neil Morris, um, the the reporter for who's based out here in, in North Carolina, and he was saying that they were talking about four NWSL teams. And I, I think that's a little bit excessive. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think an international cup should, should be dominated by or make up half of the teams by by one country. I want to see, you know, a, a pretty good spread. I don't mind if two teams come from the NWSL, maybe the two championship final finalists, and then you have a team, yes. from, a team from France, from Germany, from Sweden, from Japan. Mexico. Yeah. Let's get, you know, let's, let's find out. We keep, you know, one of the things that we keep talking about and I get asked a lot and I'm sure you do from people who are relatively new to the women's game or from broadcasters is which league is the best in the world. And the honest answer is I don't know because we're not, we're not putting our teams against other leagues in the world. You know, the ICC is the first time that we've seen international football in the women's game. And if they can expand that out or if, if FIFA's, um, plans and I know from the time that I worked at FIFA for the six months I had over the summer I know that a club world championship is definitely on the agenda and something that they want to push through how long it will take I don't know but you know until we have that club world cup or until the ICC is expanded out we're not really going to know which is the best league because we have no idea which team is the best we talk about Lyon we talk about North Carolina Courage we talk about Wolfsburg but ultimately we don't really know at this stage yeah and and there and there's so much growth you know, for us to look forward to. And, and I totally agree with you about not having a something that's billed as an international championship that has half American teams. Um, when there is, we're seeing the growth, you know, 
worldwide. But but to keep things on uh, the UK, I also want to talk about um, England obviously does not have to qualify for Euro 2021 mm. because, hey, they're hosting. Um, <laughs> so, so talk yeah. about, I mean, England hosting, which I think is, is, is a great thing, but also, you know, what that means for the, the team's preparations for the next couple of years. Yeah, look, huge for us, a huge opportunity to continue the growth of the game. We hosted the Euros back in 2005 and it was confined to one area of the country. It was in the northwest of England. And I think other than the opening game, which was, I think, attended by just shy of 30,000 people at Manchester's Etihad Stadium, I'm not sure how much of an impact it had on the UK public. This will be different. You know, there's a spread over the country. Uh, we've got a combination of smaller stadiums and bigger stadiums. It, it's going to be it's going to be big for us. And actually, we've got a difficult act to follow because I think the Netherlands put on the best tournament that I've ever been to. Um, I've done I think four or five major tournaments in the time I've covered women's soccer, and the Netherlands hosting of the Euros in 2017 was absolutely phenomenal. I had a blast, and I know a lot of fans did as well. Um, but for, in terms of the kind of preparation for 2021, it's going to be a case of Phil Neville organizing or, or getting his staff to organize the most competitive exhibition friendly, exhibition and friendly matches that, that they can get hold of. Um, they played two matches uh, at the end of at the end of August, beginning of September against Belgium and against Norway. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, they were sloppy uh, in those two matches. They drew with Belgium and they lost to Norway. So they um, they haven't exactly started preparation in the best way. Uh, I think there's there's some issues that need ironing out within the team. Defensively, we look a little bit shaky. Set pieces, we've we've been very very poor, and I think that's a continuation from the World Cup. But ultimately, um, the the key thing now is to is to play as as many top opponents as possible. The the team played Brazil at the beginning of October up in Middlesbrough, which is in the northeast of England, um, and the only other confirmed friendly at the moment will be at Wembley in November against Germany, which over sixty thousand tickets have been sold for that one. So. You know, there's there's some good opposition to come. Uh, there's an opportunity for for Phil Neville to try a few different things. I prefer if he didn't play Lucy Bronze in midfield. I've been very vocal about that and written articles about it. But um, yeah, look, it, it, it's an opportunity now for for England to get things right. It's an opportunity for them to play opposition at a higher standard. If we're honest, Jen, it might actually work better for them because if I'm being totally upfront. Some of the qualifiers that England and the top nations have to play for major tournaments are foregone conclusions before they've even stepped on the pitch. When you're playing, right, and I mean this right. disrespect. I don't mean any disrespect to these countries, but when you're playing the likes of Bosnia and Herzegovina and Macedonia and, and Serbia, you know, they're just nowhere near as developed on the women's game as they are in the men's. And England will go into those games and sometimes the scoreline might be tight because those play those teams just bunker for 90 minutes and try to go with a damage limitation approach. Playing top opposition over the next two years, England may well be better prepared for the Euros than if they were going through a qualification period. And that's a really good point, especially when you think about you know, that the last few years they've played in She Believes and I would assume would likely be part of the She Believes Cup, uh, you know, th- this spring, you know, so that, you know, you're getting those three games in a, in a tight tournament like setting, you know, and and being able to schedule friendlies against whomever. I think it's the same point as Canada prepping for 2015. I remember there were uh, some journalists in the U.S. saying, why isn't Canada participating in Women's World Cup qualifying? And, of course, I wanted to slap them upside the head and say, because they're the host. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and a few people said, but, you know, wouldn't that be good for them to have those games? I'm like, uh, yeah, playing Martinique, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. no offense to Martinique, but playing Martinique, which can't even go on to the World Cup because they're only an associate member, um, you know, it's like, it, yeah, pl- playing five games, three of which will be really weak opponents in two weeks, is not great preparation. Instead, they were traveling all over the world, playing all the teams in the top five, and Canada had a pretty good run in yeah. 2015. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you, you got to look at it that way. Last topic for you, hmm. Aaron, um, Olympics 2020. This time... The England women get to go 
to the Olympics as opposed to 2015, they finished third in the World Cup and they don't get to go. So explain to to listeners, especially my American listeners, who are probably really confused about <laughs> the whole UK versus Team GB kind of thing. But it, it, explain why they get to go to the Olympics this time. Yeah, it, it comes down to one word, and that's politics. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think where it becomes complicated with the UK, and, I, and I'm not hoping not, I'm not teaching anyone to suck eggs, is that we're kind of in a unique position, and that we have countries within a country. Um, so we obviously have uh, the UK is made up obviously of England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and and for Team GB to be able to compete at a, a World Cup, one of the countries that are at the World Cup need to qualify. Um, through as one of the the top three or top four um, European nations, uh, to and, that, and UEFA decides how qualifying works for Olympics, and so UEFA said, "All right, these you know top number of teams from the Women's World Cup, yeah, will, will qualify. So it will be Netherlands and Sweden having made the semifinals, and yeah. and and England, obviously. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the top three nations will will go through. So." England are officially the representatives of the of the UK of of GB going into the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Now it, it's all very well England qualifying but Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland's respective football associations have to essentially agree or rubber stamp an agreement that they are happy to support and back England being the sole representative. Now when I say sole representative, Phil Neville will be the head coach of Team GB. Ultimately, the decision that he has now is that he is able to, as far as I'm aware, pick players from those three other nations as well as his own, as well as England. Um, that's where it becomes complicated because ultimately yes. <laughs> the, reason, the reason that the other FAs, and one of the things people might be asking is why would the other football associations, you know, block England or Team GB from competing. There is a concern that um, identity is one thing. Um, if the Team GB that Phil Neville goes with is made up of 18 players from England, how is that representative of the entire of Great Britain? Because there's no Welsh, Northern Irish or Scottish players. Um, I think the other thing that's come up in the past, and I have to be honest, I don't really buy into this argument, is that there's a concern that FIFA may revoke um, memberships uh, or, or kind of re reword them or, or, or alter them in some way so that all of those countries end up being a team GB so they wouldn't be individual countries and, and I don't think that will ever happen and, and England wouldn't buy into that either if there was any fear or any concern or any you know possibility of, of all of those four nations becoming one there's no way that England would buy into that either but yeah essentially in 2015 the the other nations didn't buy into or agree for for England to be the representative of of team GB so that's why they didn't go to Rio in 2016. Um, now, I think probably from public pressure, I think there are players from those nations that are good enough to represent Team GB. I look at Jess Fishlock of, of Wales and I look at Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert, Kim Little, Scotland as well. You know, there are players who have a genuine opportunity to play in the Olympics in 2020. And, and I imagine that those players have said to their federations, how, how can you step in the way of me achieving my dream of, of playing at a major tournament, especially for someone like Jess Fishlock. I mean, uh, injured at the moment. I know I saw Jess. She's been doing some media over here over the last few weeks during her recovery from her injury. Um, and she didn't say it outright, but I'm pretty confident that if you gave Jess Fishlock a call ahead of that Olympics and, um, and Phil Neville gave her a call and, and said, look, Jess, I want you to be part of my, of my Olympic team. There's no way Jess is turning that down because this is probably her last chance along with the Euros in 2021 right. to play a major tournament. You know, there's no way she's turning that down. And if the FA, the Welsh FA step in her way, which essentially they did in, in 2016, if we're being honest, um, then that, that is it for her. She will never have played in a, in a major tournament, which is, you know, with the quality that Jess has, is for me incredibly disappointing. Um, right. Everyone wanted to see Kim Litter on a major stage. She did that in 2012 at the Olympics, but she's had the chance to do it with Scotland in, in 2019. Um, Jess has never had the opportunity to do that. Tash Harding has never had an opportunity to do that, the Welsh, Welsh international as well. So um, I hope that if Team GB, well, I hope that when Team GB go to the Olympics in 2020, and I know there are people that disagree with me, I hope that it is made up of players from 
I think it would probably be three nations with respect to Northern Ireland. They're a little bit behind, although they did get a good result against Wales in their, in a Euro qualifier a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's maybe one or two Northern Ireland players that might be in with a shout, but it is going to be made up largely of England, Scotland and Wales. Um, but uh, I hope it's representative of the whole of the of, of GB. I hope it's not just England players. Well, and it's, it's uh, so cool, I think, to have – or cool is probably a weak word for it, but I think it's critical. Let's say that it's critical. I think to have that Olympic year where England and other UK players are involved following another great world cup run and all the new investment that's going into the FAWSL, right? Like that just those, all of those can, can work together. So, uh, you know, I'm glad there's been a slight tweak in the politics you know, for whatever reason, so that, you know, Team GB will be will be part of the Olympics in Tokyo. I think I think that's going to be great. Well, Kieran, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. Um, well, first of all, uh, you know, uh, to come all the way over uh, to the U.S. again. I know you've done it a lot for Universal Drafts and Championship Games. Um, but thanks for taking the time to talk about all the different topics Um over over in your neck of the woods um and l- let me give you time for one last athletic plug just so people know what <laughs> it is and know well i mean just that there are not a lot of outlets still to get really solid women's soccer coverage so i like to highlight all the different places so so give me a 20 second plug no i appreciate that jen and, and i think people and I hope people who listen to your podcast and will, will probably know about my background this isn't for me the athletic is not an opportunity to um to kind of stamp on the, the good work that has been done by other people over the years this is just an opportunity that um that, that gave me a chance to do something that I love and that I'm passionate about full time um and there's not many opportunities like that as I know a lot of soccer writers find a lot of people do it in their spare time and and do it um, on the side of full time jobs, which is exactly what I did for for nine years. But this is a, a great opportunity for me to tell some some really good women's soccer stories from from England and Europe, and as I said, dipping my toe into the US. And um, the good thing the Athletic do is they give me a lot of freedom. They give me room to breathe. There's no word limit, so I can go in depth. I wrote a, a really in depth piece on Joe Montemuro, the the Arsenal women's head coach. Spoke to his uh, spoke to his brother, and I spoke. To to one of his friends from school and some of his players about what Joe's like and what it's like to work with. And um, I hope that we're doing something. I don't describe what we're doing as better. I describe it as different. Um, and that's hopefully what will encourage people to subscribe. Just go to theathletic.com. There's lots of details on there of, 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 of how to subscribe. As I said, there's a lot of discount codes floating around on social media. So um, come, and, come and join the journey because uh, we're trying to do some good stuff. Thank you so much, Karen. Thanks, Jen. Time to wrap it up with the back four. First, we've got just 15 games left in the NWSL regular season. Two of them will air live on ESPN2, and the rest, of course, will be on Yahoo Sports. For those of you in the U.S., that is. If you're not in the U.S., keep in mind, uh, worldwide rights for NWSL are now owned by ESPN, except in Canada, where it's TSN. So... If you don't have access to ESPN where you are, you might want to figure out how to use a VPN so your computer thinks you're in the U.S. and then, you know, you can watch on Yahoo Sports. And coming up, of course, we have the 2019 NWSL Championship game not that far off. Tickets for the match are on sale now at nwslsoccer.com championship. The game will be played Sunday, October 27th in Cary at the home of the North Carolina Courage. Semifinals will be played the previous Sunday, October 20th, hosted, of course, by the number one and number two seeds. All three of those games will be live on ESPN2. But before the playoffs, we have another FIFA break coming up, and the U.S. will wrap up their victory tour with two games against South Korea. They'll play in Charlotte, North Carolina on October 3rd, and then at Soldier Field in Chicago on October 6th. Those two games will be the last ones for head coach Jill Ellis. After that, there will be a new head coach, and 
We just heard two more games in November. U.S. Soccer has announced the team will play Sweden on November 7th in Columbus and then Costa Rica on November 10th in Jacksonville. For more information on all those games, you can go to ussoccer.com. Last but not least, next Wednesday, September 25th, that's the last home game for the Houston Dash, and that will be the, the national TV game for the week. So that'll be on ESPN2. I am doing a big push uh, to sell tickets for that match. And even if you're nowhere near Houston, you might want to buy one of the tickets because every ticket purchase gets you an entry into my special keeper notes drawing for exclusive Women's World Cup and Houston Dash prizes. Just go to keepernotes.com to check it out. $15 tickets, no fees. And if you can't use your ticket, I can find someone's butt to put in that seat. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing this podcast with a friend. And many thanks, of course, to Sean for putting it all together. But now she's anybody's girl.